The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Please take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, the very end of Matthew 8, and then we're also going to be in the beginning of Matthew chapter 9 as well. In this sermon series on the book of Matthew, we've been tracing or tracking uh, the authority of Jesus. Without a doubt, the central figure within the book of Matthew and the rest of the Gospels is Jesus Christ. Matthew, like the other Gospels, focuses on a, a, a several stint several years, a stint of Jesus' life, and then ultimately climaxes in his death and resurrection. But from the very outset of the book of Matthew, one of the other things that we've kind of been tracing, or at least seeing, is that Jesus has lived this incredible life, but has encountered many obstacles. All throughout the book, we're going to be seeing Jesus come against obstacle after obstacle, different kinds of obstacles, ones that we've already seen so far, even when he was a very young boy with King Herod. You remember all the way back there when the wise men came from the east, right? And we know the Christmas story. We even looked at this around Christmas time. The wise men come from the east, and, and that they had this conversation with Herod. And Herod says, hey, I, w- I want to know where this Christ is too, because I want to be able to go and worship him. But of course, he didn't want to worship him. He actually wanted to kill him. So after not hearing back from the wise men, this paranoia-driven Herod, he, he goes and what? He goes and kills all the boys who were two years old and younger in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area, hoping and thinking that he would kill Jesus as well, this one who was supposedly the new king. We even saw back in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus overcame the temptation of the devil and even commanded the devil to get away from him. You remember that encounter that he had with the devil and the devil kept on tempting him and Jesus kept coming back at him with Scripture, And eventually Jesus says, get away from me, Satan, and the devil immediately obeys. And over and over, Jesus is going to continue to, to baffle all of these different opponents, to overcome all of these opponents. We're going to come this morning to where Jesus finally starts interacting with scribes. Remember, that's often who Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes. This is one of the regular things that we're going to see within this book And over and over, Jesus continues to baffle these guys. But at the same time, their hate is growing for him. All throughout the book, they're just hating him more and more. There's this underlying current where the scribes and the Pharisees are seeking to put an end to Jesus' life, trying to figure out a way in which they can finally tear him down. And then finally, as we end the book, we're going to see this several-day span where it seems as though... All of the opponents that have come after Jesus, who have attacked him on every side, have gained the victory. Where it looks like Satan and the religious leaders and the Roman authorities all combine for one big final assault against Jesus. Where it looks like he is finally ended. They kill him. They put him into the ground and truly believe that they had finally done it. And so together they're all letting out this great sigh of relief as Jesus lets out his last breath and is thrown into a tomb. So they eventually will think that they had finally done away with this new teacher, that they had finally done away with this one who was calling himself the Messiah, the King. But what they didn't realize is that the authority by which he overcame their opposition 
was the same authority that he would have that would enable him to get him get out of the grave. And speaking about his life over in John, uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 10, he says, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. The authority of Jesus is and was unlike anything that's ever been seen, unlike anything that has ever been demonstrated, unlike anything that these Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders and the devil, unlike any of their authority, Jesus, his authority outshines all of it as we go through this book of Matthew, displaying himself as the Messiah King, this one with the true authority. And remember specifically that we looked at for quite some time in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 in his Sermon on the Mount where he taught and astonished the crowds with his teaching. The end of Matthew 7 says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority. They recognized that Christ wasn't some run-of-the-mill guy. That what they heard in his teaching was authoritative. He was teaching them as, as, as a teacher that they had never even heard before. Nobody else had even come close to his authority. He was teaching them as one who had that authority because he really was the one who had the authority and not the Pharisees and scribes that they had so often heard. But even since the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen him display more authority, not only in his teaching, but in his miracles. So right after he gets done teaching, remember, he says he comes down from the mountain and immediately a leper comes up to Jesus in order to be healed by him. And so Jesus simply reaches out and he touches this guy who's got this skin disease all over him and completely cleanses the man of all leprosy. Remember then a Roman centurion uh, had a servant who was paralyzed. Jesus says that he is willing to go and to heal the servant. But the centurion says, no, no, I know that all you have to do is, Jesus, is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, he's astounded by the faith that this centurion has and says, go, let it be done for you as you have said. So this, Jesus has the authority even to heal people from a distance, not even at a touch, but at a distance. And after this, we see that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of malaria. He instantly heals her and she gets up and serves him. And as we look at all of these instances, it's clear that Jesus is no mere man. But he is preaching and he is healing as one who has complete authority. But then last week, it it, it almost upped the ante a little bit when Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He has evidenced his authority in his teaching and is, is in his healing, but he is, now te- he is now showing that he has authority over nature itself. Remember that the great storm came up onto the sea and the, the disciples were panicking. They go and they wake up Jesus and he gets up and he doesn't even deal with the storm right away. He deals with his disciples' fear and lack of faith before he says anything about the storm itself. And then, so he gets up. He says to the storm, peace be still, and everything is quiet. The great storm turns into a great calm. There's complete tranquility. And at the end of that account, these disciples are wondering to themselves, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This is true authority. This is true power. Jesus can teach with power. He can heal the worst diseases of this day. And he can make the most ferocious storms be still because he is really and truly the promised Messiah that was mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And so in this morning's passage, we're going to be seeing Jesus display his authority again. 
but in a little bit of a different way than we've seen him display it in the other passages, passages aside from maybe Matthew chapter 4 with the devil. But as we've reviewed, Jesus has shown his incredible power and his authority over physical matters like healings and nature. But this morning, we're going to see his authority over the spiritual realm as well. So look, at, look with me in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs. So fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed into the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So we have two accounts where Jesus demonstrates his complete authority over spiritual matters. The first of which takes place in the country of the Gadarenes, which was across the sea from where Jesus usually was in the area of Israel. And so he goes over to that land of the Gadarenes where there's a couple demon-possessed men. And then the second account happens when he goes back to Israel uh, and, and, and deals with the paralyzed man. But in this first account, we see Jesus meeting these two demon-possessed men who had been living in the cemetery of that day. And usually we think of of cemeteries as a peaceful place, right? As a place where we would go and it's quiet and we could visit there. But for this cemetery, these two demon-possessed men were absolutely wreaking havoc. The text refers to these men as fierce or as exceedingly violent. And I just, I I love these scenarios where we kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of who Jesus was. To, To put it lightly, Christ isn't a wimp. Here he goes into a country that's not his own. There's demon-possessed men, and the text calls them exceedingly fierce or violent. And they're hanging out in this graveyard, and so nobody else is passing through this cemetery, but Jesus goes ahead and he passes that way. He goes up there. He's not daunted by these demon-possessed men. He's not daunted by how fierce, supposedly, they are. And I just love this about him, getting a glimmer of who he is was as a person going in there and meeting with these men. But we know that Jesus has interacted with demon-possessed men in the past. We saw it very briefly back in chapter 4 and in chapter 8, where it mentions that Jesus has uh, uh, cast demons out of people, but none of the specifics around those situations were were mentioned in chapter 4 or chapter 8. So as we come into this account, 
All we know is that Jesus has interacted with demoniacs before, but we've never seen how he's interacted with them. So it's fascinating as he comes up to these demoniacs in verse 29, and they begin crying out to Jesus. Look at what the first question is from the demons in verse 29. They say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Now you remember from last week, when the disciples were contemplating what had just happened in the calming of the winds and the waves, they asked themselves, what sort of man is this? And here the demons within these men, the, who they were possessing, clearly acknowledge who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't have to come up to them and introduce themselves and say, I'm Jesus and I'm about to pull you out of these men. They looked at him and they knew exactly who he was. But look at the second question in verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? So there's several things about this question that I want to note. They ask if Jesus had come here to torment them. So to go to that area. In other words, they, they were wondering if Jesus had come across the sea to the land of the Gadarenes in order to deal specifically with them in that place. But the second thing I find interesting is the word torment. <laughs> You guys find it a little bit ironic that demons are asking Jesus about torment. Asking if Jesus was going to torment them all the while they're tormenting these two men. I, I find that ironic. But the question goes on to say, have you come here to torment us before the time? In other words, the demons knew that judgment was coming their way. And they knew and they wondered why Jesus was there already messing up what they were doing. They were pretty content possessing these men and wondering why Jesus had come and if he had come specifically in order to deal with them. But here, our king, Jesus, is exposing this wickedness. He's exposing the, the demons. He's having compassion on those who were possessed and under this great satanic delusion who were themselves terrorizing others in this cemetery as a result of their being possessed. But the king is exposing all of this. And so the demons literally beg, the text says, the demons are begging Jesus to let them go and possess pigs that were some distance away and asks if that would be possible for them to go and to possess them instead of possessing these men. And this is interesting and gives us a little bit of insight into uh, demonic activity. Where in Matthew chapter 12, uh, clearly shows that the demons want to be in possession of a person. When they are cast out of someone, they are restless until they find a home again. And so they ask Jesus if he is willing to allow them, after they get pulled out of this man, if they can go and to possess at least the pigs, because they would be restless until they found another possession. But again, this highlights for us the authority of Christ. These demons were at the mercy of Jesus here. They, they couldn't just do what they wanted. They couldn't be cast out of these two men and just go find a couple other men to deal with. They actually had to submit to whatever it is that Jesus commanded them to do. So although Jesus doesn't explicitly answer their question concerning the judgment aspect, he did disrupt their plans to continue possessing these men in the cemetery of the Gadarenes. So the demons rush out into the pigs. He says, go, and he allows them to go, and they rush into the pigs that belong to the people of that town. The pigs rush down a steep bank and drown in the sea. Now we know that the Jews, of course, didn't have anything to do with pigs. They didn't have any kind of regard for pigs because of their dietary restrictions. But for the people of this town, in this distant country, these pigs would have been their livelihood. But listen to what the parallel passage over in Mark says about this. 
And they, the people of the town, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So now this is interesting, and this is something that we haven't seen in regards to Jesus and his miracles that he had already done over in Israel. When he had performed his miracles in Israel, they would continually bring more and more people for him to heal. More and more people for him to cast demons out of and all the rest. But the people of this town, after Jesus had done this great miracle of pulling the demons out of these men, the town wanted nothing more to do with Jesus. They, they came and they looked at these men and said, they're clothed, they're, they're in their right mind. They were afraid of that, and they didn't want to, they didn't say, oh, well, we've got a few more over here that maybe you could help, or maybe we've got some injured people over here that you could heal, like Jesus had often experienced to this point, but the people of this town wanted nothing more to do with Jesus. One commentator said this, too many prefer their pigs above their Savior. How true this is. But the people of this town weren't enthralled in worship over Jesus and what he had done. They didn't look at Jesus and reflect upon his power and what he had just accomplished in their sight. They simply wanted him away from them. Jesus had just dealt with one of these people's greatest problems, right? I mean, they said, the text, again, says that they were fierce, that they were causing obstruction. They wouldn't let anybody pass through the cemetery. Jesus had just dealt with one of their big problems, but they were too concerned with their pigs to even give Jesus a second thought, though his power was clearly evident in the lives of the men that he had cast the demons from. And anytime Jesus becomes somebody's king, anytime Jesus enters into somebody's life, he causes disruption. And so many people that you and I interact with daily prefer what it is in their life at the moment that makes them happy instead of Jesus. Not realizing that they are put, putting above Jesus, or not realizing that what they are putting above Jesus is part of what is sending them to hell. It's like what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory, a well-known uh, paragraph here. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased with all the things that we lift up as more important in our lives than Jesus. All the while not realizing the infinite pleasure, the infinite joy that we have and that is in Christ alone. So what are you preferring over Christ this morning? Simple question, preferring our pigs above our Savior. What are you preferring above Christ's money, ambition, status, relationships, fill in the blank? What are you preferring over Christ? What are you making your joy in that is on this earth instead of Christ alone? After this account with the demons, Jesus gets into the boat and he crosses back over to Israel to where his base of operations was in the town of Capernaum. And we see that there are people who bring to Jesus a paralytic. Now this wouldn't really have been anything out of the ordinary for Jesus at all. We already know, again, that they had brought many people who had diseases or problems and Jesus would go ahead and heal them. In fact, he has already healed a paralyzed man. You remember with the Roman centurion, his servant, he had healed him. So to heal a paralytic 
was really something we've already seen until we see this wasn't going to be like a normal healing because of things that Jesus says. Look down in chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. So we don't know. Text doesn't tell us. We don't know how this man became paralyzed. We don't know if he was maybe doing something sinful and then maybe fell and broke himself to the point where he was paralyzed. We don't know how it happened and we don't need to know. However, we do know two things about him very clearly. One, that he's a sinner, right? And two, that he was paralyzed. And Jesus is going to take care of both of this man's biggest problems in one day. But it's interesting because the passage says that Jesus sees the faith of those that brought this paralytic to him. Indicating that this man did not have the faith of his friends. Maybe he was skeptical of Jesus. Maybe he wasn't sure if he could be healed. And Jesus looks at him and says words that he surely wouldn't have expected to hear. Take heart. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus saw the deeper problem that this man had. Anybody who would ever walk by this man, he said, oh, he's paralyzed. He's laying on a bed. He's being carried around by his friend. But Jesus didn't immediately look at that as much as he did look into his heart and see the greater problem that this man had. His greatest problem wasn't necessarily his body being paralyzed, his physical body being paralyzed. It was his spiritual self that was paralyzed. He was paralyzed to the point where he had no ability spiritually. His inability was he could not forgive himself on his own. He could not attain forgiveness on his own. And here Jesus freely extends it to him. My friends, that's, that's where we all are apart from Christ. We're all completely spiritually enabled. That is all of our deeper problem, that you and I do not have the spiritual wherewithal or ability to be righteous enough to attain forgiveness. We all, like this paralytic, need Christ to extend his forgiveness to us. Otherwise, we will remain paralyzed in our sins. Others within this passage and throughout the book of Matthew that are paralyzed in their sin are the scribes and the Pharisees. Over and over, we're going to see Jesus dealing with these men who are just totally anti-Jesus, these religious leaders, and he's dealing with them over and over and over, over things that they don't approve of what he's saying. But you know, even if you and I were standing there on that day, and we heard the words of Jesus, if we heard Jesus look at a man and say, your sins are forgiven, we would be thinking to ourselves, who in the world is this guy? Who is this man to think that he can look at another man and say, your sins are forgiven? I mean, if you're his disciples, you've seen some pretty crazy things so far. You've seen the demons being pulled out of people. You've seen the lepers being healed. You've seen the lame walk and all of those. You've seen God or Jesus have the power over nature. You've seen all of that. But when he looks at somebody and says, your sins are forgiven, they're thinking, this is a whole new level. Okay, it's interesting, maybe kind of cool that you can heal people. But now you're saying things that are really going to rub our whole religious culture the wrong way. Way, But Jesus deals well with the scribes in verse 4. Look down with me. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing the scribes' thoughts, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, 
or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus looks at these scribes. He knows exactly what's going on within their hearts, asking them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And in order to show these scribes his power to forgive sins, he commands the paralytic to rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the scribes stand by, and they call Jesus a blasphemer. The problem is that these scribes and disciples and all of those standing here know who alone has the power to forgive sins. That's why Jesus saying, your sins be forgiven is such a problem because they know who the only one is who can actually forgive sins. They know that God alone has the power to forgive sins, which is why it's such a big problem in their eyes when Jesus says this because in saying those words, Jesus is effectively claiming to be God. At the very least, claiming to to be acting on behalf of God. Psalm 103 says, My soul, praise the Lord, and do not forget all His benefits. He forgives all your sins. Isaiah 43 says, It is I who sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. And the scribes and those standing here would have known passages like this. They would have stood by to the death that God alone has the power to forgive sins. And here Jesus is extending forgiveness as though He is God, and they call Him blasphemer. And we would be thinking the same thing. And if this man from Nazareth, they're thinking, how can he forgive sins? This is the first time that Jesus had been labeled a blasphemer. And ultimately, this is going to be the charge that they killed Jesus for. But look at the reaction of the crowd in verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This miracle brought fear upon the people and glory to God when they realized the authority by which Jesus worked. And what I wonder, as we walk through these two passages, where Jesus clearly has shown his authority over the demonic forces and over sin, what I wonder is if we step back in awe and fear over who he is and render God glory over his incredible works. Who could do such works like this but God? Here King Jesus is going around casting demons out of people, completely healing a paralytic, and doing the even greater miracle of forgiving sins. The kingdom of God is advancing in the pages of Matthew, and it's continuing to advance here today. I was so encouraged this morning to hear Matt's testimony in Sunday school, and Matt went to India for uh, a week or two, and just telling the story of giving the gospel to so many of these people from India, and they're accepting and believing, and house churches are being planted. The kingdom of God is advancing throughout the world, although it may not feel like it, in Maine. But God is continually doing the great work of forgiving sins as we go about spreading the great gospel of Jesus. And my friends, the the only hope for you and the only hope for the world, the only hope for me is the message of the gospel. It's not in us. We are spiritually enabled. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. We need it from Him. We need the gospel within us worked by the power of the Spirit. The only hope for any actual or real change in you or in me is the presence of the gospel within us. The only hope of having eternal life with God, spending eternity with Him in the new heavens and in the new earth, is if we accept the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone has the power to expel the wickedness within us and to forgive us of our sins, which is exactly what every single one of us need so desperately. 
Our vile offenses are stacked up like rotting flesh to the nostrils of God. Our deeds that we consider righteous are considered filthy rags in his sight. And the person and work of Jesus alone is the accepted offering to God on our behalf. Nothing that we do. And the reaction on our part to all that Christ has done in your life and in my life and in the others should be the reaction that these crowds had on this day. We should give glory to God for the great authority by which Jesus has worked in all of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we give you glory for all that you have done. Consider the Continue to consider the questions, how can it be, and can it be, that we should gain an interest in anything that you have done? Only by what you have given to us. We thank you so much for all that we have in Christ. We stand back now when we are in awe and we wonder over him. Who has not only successfully displayed his authority over the spiritual, or the physical, but also in the spiritual. Thank you, Lord, for having the power to expel the wickedness within us and also to give us your righteousness. We are so undeserving and we're so grateful for all that you have done for us. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmain at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.